This is Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up, we'll talk to New York Times food columnist Melissa Clark about her strategies for eating less meat and dairy. And we'll continue our check-ins with restaurants around the state. How are they faring during the pandemic? But first, earlier in the year, we visited with Selma Miriam and Noel Fury, the co-owners of Bloodroot, a feminist vegetarian restaurant in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bloodroot is in Bridgeport's historic Black Rock neighborhood. It has views of the Long Island Sound and is unlike any other restaurant in Connecticut. It started out as a collective in 1977, where women could gather to talk about politics, buy books, and share simple vegetarian dishes. Its days as a collective are over, and you might only find a few Bloodroot cookbooks for sale now, but the food at the heart of Bloodroot remains vibrant, an expression of the values and beliefs of its owners. The food is unpretentious, globally inspired, plant-based, and timeless. When you walk in, it feels like you're walking into someone's home. There are mismatched chairs, tables, silverware, you name it. Yet it all fits together perfectly. You can see the kitchen from the dining room. Next to the kitchen is a hutch where you serve yourself your own water. That's right. There are no servers at Bloodroot. It's part of its charm. We really do feel like we're home right now. (laughs) This place is absolutely stunning and homey. Yes. What went into making it this way? Well, I never worked in a restaurant, though I was a waitress in college, and Noel was also a waitress, and we really didn't know anything about restaurants, so we did what we liked. We didn't have money to buy restaurant furniture, so we went to a lot of tag sales. When we bought this property, there was no kitchen and there were no windows on the beautiful water. So we had some friends who were hippies who lived in a commune in Vermont. They brought their own wood. They brought their own homegrown lima beans and winter squash, and they made lima bean squash soup after they built the kitchen and put in the windows. And (laughs) And, our restaurant was born. (laughs) (laughs) And we had this great big blank wall here, and since we were collecting all the old furniture at the tag sales or secondhand stores, we started collecting old pictures of women. And then, of course, women would come in and say, I want my mother on the wall. Or this is in the attic, I don't know who she is. And there was a woman who came in from New York and she said, you don't have any pictures of women of color here. And I said, I know, I'd like to have some. So she brought some. So each picture on the wall here maybe doesn't necessarily have a, I mean, there's a story to each picture, obviously, but not someone you guys always know. It started off as more of a decorative sort of situation. More than decorative. Yes. Kind of a symbol, I guess you might say, because they're all women and because we wanted to have an expression of the various kinds of women in the universe over the years. And also, over the years, we've gotten a lot more pictures of women of color and Native women and the like, and we really are proud of that. How many pictures are up there? Have you ever counted them? I know, I never did. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you something. I come in in the morning sometimes, and nobody's here. And my fantasy is that they've spent all night talking about us, gossiping. (laughs) (laughs) It really really feels like that. They probably have. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a sense of who they are if you look at them long enough. You really do. Is there a timeline on these pictures? Do we know how, like, the oldest picture, the oldest photo is from a certain there's, date? Or? There's turn of the century ones for wow. sure. It's exciting. You can see the clothing, how different it is, and their some of their lives are difficult. And, and you know, the the whole thing about this restaurant is we've made it a home for ourselves. Absolutely. That's why it feels mm-hmm. home-like to people yes. who come in here, and people are instantly can sense that. This is 43 years of our energy in here, women's energy, Selma's and mine, and the other women who work here. So uh, you can't help but feel that. You bring up such uh, 
perfect segue, all the women that are on the walls, mm -hmm. very inclusive. Mm -hmm. You build yourself sort of this feminist restaurant, feminist food. Why that and what does that mean? I think about this a lot. Our purpose as feminists is, number one, what would be feminist food. And way back there, we had two friends, a man who'd written a book about animal rights and a woman who became the head of uh, Friends of Animals. And they said, if you're going to do feminist food, you're not going to be eating animals. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm not a vegetarian, but I think I can do this. Before the restaurant yeah. even started. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I like to cook, right. and I figured, and I like to cook mostly different ethnic foods, okay, because that was fun. But not and always vegetarian or vegan. Right. It no, wasn't right. vegetarian right. at all, yeah. Yeah. but I decided I was going to do that. So it was a challenge. That was the fun part, and that's what we did. So our primary purpose is to not eat any other sentient creatures. That's our primary purpose. Okay. Wow. Now, secondary, and this is surely feminist for heaven's sakes and it is this inclusivity it's this thing of trying to talk about represent study promote all the different human beings on this earth all the different cultures and i certainly believe this with all my heart and soul that the foods of different peoples are all wonderful in their own way and i wanted to learn as much as i could about that and that is what we've done and way back there at the beginning I graduated Bassick High School in Bridgeport, but there was this little bodega that wasn't there when I was in Bassick, <laughs> and they had all these things, yuca, yautia, calabaza, platano, and so I bought one of each, and because I read a lot, and I decided to make sancocho. That and is very brave of you, by the way, <laughs> having yeah. no idea of what those root vegetables were, go right yeah. into a sancocho. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you had That's to typical. cook them each separately and taste. I, yeah. I didn't cook them together because yeah, I yeah. didn't know anything about them. And, Someone, you know, you, today can, we still do that, cook yes. them separately and then put them in right. so they get cooked just right. Can you describe sancocho just so everyone understands okay, what that is? Okay, so it's a Puerto Rican soup stew. And I think the prime thing for me was a piece of an ear of corn. Right. So we right. only do it at the end of August or early September. And each of these vegetables is not something that those of us who came from Northern European background know anything about. And they're delicious. So good. And to learn them is really yeah, wonderful. So that was the first thing like that, that we did. And then I'm a Jew, so I really wanted to do something that was Jewish. And kasha varnishkas. You know, buckwheat yes. and little noodles with it. And that was the second thing. And it was having to stretch my mind. And all of us, we all work, you know, we do this thing. Whoever is in the kitchen, taste it. What does it need? Does it need more salt? Should it have lemon juice? Mm -hmm. And this is how I was taught. And I was taught when I lived in the Southeast Bronx by a Greek woman. And she would say, Selma, what does it need? I don't know. Is it a quarter <laughs> teaspoon? It say? What does it say in the book? <laughs> and she made me taste and think. That's the it's way judgmental. to learn. Yeah. Well, it's judgmental. That's how you learn. Mm -hmm. How does it taste? What does it need? I love that. I think yes. that's so yeah. important. I love that too. And for about 10 years, we had a Mexican woman working here. Mm -hmm. She came like out of high school and she had opinions. And she was, <laughs> you've got to cook beans in a clay pot. The clay and is on the stove, on the yeah. surface of the stove. So her mama came back from a trip to Mexico with a clay pot on her lap in the plane. So then, of course, we figured we had to try this out. Noel and I both soaked beans overnight, and Noel had too many beans, so she put some in a Farberware pot. 
and there was actually just no a stainless steel pot. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. And the clay pot beans were wonderful. It's much better. They were yeah. better. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. You know, we have uh, an Indian friend, a homeopathic doctor yeah. that we see, and she said it's the minerals in the clay that get into the whatever's being cooked there. So we don't know, but that is what she thinks in, in, in India. Also, they use clay pots to cook the beans. You see, and this is such, such richness that you don't learn in the CIA. You know, mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing that is exceedingly precious to me. And uh, I guess when Robin came in, I had a little piece of onion in my hair. Not she that I do us. this regularly, mm -hmm. right. but it was a very strong onion. And of course, this is from an old movie like Water for Chocolate, for anyone who remembers. Yeah. 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 And you do that, and it does somewhat diminish the strength of the onion. So these are things to learn. My grandmother taught me when, when chopping See? onions, and you should yeah. try this, yeah. put a lemon wedge in your mouth. And, and it has no effect on you yeah. whatsoever. And my sister says, put a wedge of bread in your mouth. Yeah. Every culture has, yeah, yeah. has their thing. But the onion's better. All right. <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. And if I you bet. do start crying uncontrollably because the onion's terrible, <laughs> put your head in the freezer and you'll stop immediately. <laughs> oh, dear. True story. True story. You heard it here You'll first. stop immediately. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, I love hearing you talk about our ancestors, right? Yes. And indigenous foods and indigenous cultures. Yes. It's important to both of you to be inclusive, obviously, as feminists, yes. but even the folks that you bring into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you mentioned an Indian cook, a Mexican cook, yeah. Puerto mm -hmm. Rican cooks. Mm -hmm. What inspired that decision? How do you maintain that today? Uh, it's been something of an accident. Right. Okay. <laughs> right, it is. Okay, but you understand that I've always been interested, long before Bloodroot. Okay. I take you as a very nosy woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to belong to the Society for Ethical Culture, and every year they had an international tasting dinner, and I was chair of it for several years. The treasure of Bridgeport is the diversity of its people. I just love all the Absolutely. different kinds of people that walk in the door here. It mm -hmm. is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And how many years ago, maybe eight or ten years ago, we were having problems getting part-time workers, and we learned about the Mercy Center in Bridgeport. They had immigrant women who needed jobs, and wow, what a treasure. We have wow. about uh, four women here from there yeah. that we've gotten from the Mercy Center from different countries, from Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, Carol's from Jamaica, mm -hmm. and we have a Haitian woman also. Carol didn't come through the, the no. Mercy Center, but uh, each one of them brings their culture with them, mm -hmm. and they're still very much involved in their cultural, in their communities. And oh, and, and Layla, Layla, who's uh, Ethiopian, and, Layla, and a great cook. Yeah, a great cook. Yeah. And yeah. what about, I mean, also adding a sense of family by being here? Yes, we're kind of family to them. We're yeah. kind of extended Absolutely. family. So it all happened by mistake because you needed help. Exactly. Yes, yes. And for folks who don't know the Mercy Center in Bridgeport, uh, what uh, is it? It's a, an organization. It used to be Catholic. It's now non-sectarian. And it is a school for women in need. And some of them are local women from Bridgeport, and some of them are new immigrants. And what they do is they help them toward a lot of different things. Their GEDs, their uh, driver's licenses, how to 
and navigate any kind of problem in terms of mm -hmm. getting their uh, citizenship. They help them with everything. Childcare, it is the most amazing organization. And the women that come from there, whatever they're teaching them comes here too, and that's wow. valuable. They teach them what's important, how to, how to manage in this mm -hmm. culture, which you know is different from theirs. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, and we also have a woman from the Congo. That's Jolie. right, Jolie. And all of them have different ways of cooking and different things that they can teach us or talk to us about or approve of our Haitian polenta, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just such a nice exchange that goes on. Yeah, know? I was going to say, I'm sure the Puerto Rican sancocho you made is different than my friend who's Dominican, she'll say, her yeah, yeah. sancocho from the Dominican Republic yeah, is yeah, best. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll debate that till you know, yeah. till the cows come I home. wonder what the difference is. <laughs> the Puerto Rican one is obviously better. Just kidding. <laughs> you might have a dog in the fight, I think. I yeah. can't tell. I can't you tell. have to make a sancocho now. I can do it. Yeah. The diverse women that work here and the, amount, the, the amazing group of people that you have over yeah. the years that have worked here. But Carol, who you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, has been here for a while. Yeah, over just, 10 years. Just, just yeah. tell us a little bit about Carol. It's hard to say enough about Carol. Yeah. I mean, she's fabulous. She kind of runs the kitchen. She mm -hmm. really does. She makes sure that people function as a group and have respect for each other and do the work. It's a rare place where you can have the sort of intimacy and closeness with people and learn as much about them as we can in the kitchen with these women. And I, I've said over and over again, this is an incredible privilege to know yes. people that are so different from us yes. and to share our work together and to... Yes share a little bit of their lives. You don't have a wait staff. How do you make that work? It works by itself. It is the best decision we ever made to not have a wait staff. It was accidental, like a lot of things. Some <laughs> recipes are accidental. Is there any blueprints anywhere, Selma? Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> the only thing I can tell you is that when I bought this piece of land, everyone said, you're crazy to try to do a restaurant that nobody will find you. This is long before GPS. And we spent a lot of our day answering the phone and saying, you know, go down elsewhere, take your second left, your first right, the third left, <laughs> and it's a dead-end street, and that's where we are. This is true, you know. Yeah. And, you know, people will not come. Well, if people need what you're doing, they come. Mm -hmm. And they did. The third part of what the... Feminist food. Or yeah, feminist the, the yeah. food and the diversity <laughs> is, as a woman, as a Jew, I have been in restaurants where they look over you and well who else is here you know is there mm -hmm. a man or something else mm -hmm. you know and so I really really want everyone who walks in the door to feel welcome whether they're fat or whether they are a different color or whatever clothes they're wearing or whatever lifestyle they're living I want them to feel comfortable and welcome here and I have always felt that way. That doesn't mean that I don't have opinions. I've got opinions and I usually tell people what my opinions are. <laughs> but I don't want people to feel that because of who they are, they are not welcome here. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to say that because there are some people who think that's not true of us. Mm -hmm. And I think most people know it is true of us. I mean, yeah. You guys are so inviting and so warm. I, I was here for three minutes yeah. and you grabbed me and brought me to show me your pie well, crust, which I, I loved. I thought you might want to see the pie I crust. I did. Absolutely. Chef, you know? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting to me to see uh, customers come in, new people who don't really know what it's about, what they're getting into, and uh, perhaps have expectations of a, a right. regular restaurant and a sort of hesitation that sometimes happen and then they decide okay well we'll try this out and the evolution from that hesitation and whatever into being really happy to be comfortable and be able to get your own water and whatever is really wonderful to see and it does happen quite frequently actually what is your favorite thing to eat here oh goodness <laughs> 
That's everything. Not, what day, what month, That's what right. year. Right now I'm crazy about the polenta. It's the newest thing on the menu. And I really do think it is over the top like the jerk. And yeah. I can't explain why it is as fabulous as it is. And when Layla does her Ethiopian food oh, and yeah. makes the injera, oh my God, that is just a great gift. It's a very incredible skill to be able to make injera. She brings in her hot plate. There's a sourdough starter, a teff starter, mm -hmm. makes the batter, and she pours it out on there and swirls it around, and, and you have this great big pancake of teff. We're in 2020. You're already successful because you have withstood the test of time. How many restaurants have come and gone? Do you think about success? Do you think, oh my gosh, are we done? Money-wise, we're not very successful. A lot of times we don't take our own paychecks home. Okay. This is recently in the last mm -hmm. year or so. Yeah. But Jean-Paul Van Gerichten, if you know who he is. I do know him. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I wish I knew him. <laughs> I'll introduce you. Oh, yeah. He's great. Uh, and he, somebody asked him about retirement, and he said, it sounds like a disease. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not agree with him more. I'm going to be 85 years old in about three weeks. If you told me to retire, what would I do? Right. And we both feel this way, you know? We work in a beautiful place. I mean, this is just good luck. Not every restaurant gets to do this. Mm -hmm. So if we're here 10 hours, you know, you can go out in the middle of the day and see what kind of birds there are flying over the water or what's in bloom. And we're eating really delicious food, which changes all with the seasons. And we've got all these interesting people. There's not a meal that happens that somebody doesn't come in who is either very interesting or people that just mean a great deal to us. Mm -hmm. It's like a big, big extended family. You love what you so, do. So I would miss them so much if I wasn't here. So then you're not retiring, lady. That's right. I'm making camembert these days. I'm oh, so right. excited. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, the amazing thing about Selma is she never stops. And <laughs> the latest thing is it's the camembert cheese, vegan cheese made with cashews and other things and all what? these psyllium And mold. And mold. mold. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, this camembert is fabulous. And that's the thing. When we do something that used to be dairy and we're making it vegan, we're going to make it great or we're not going to serve it because gonna yeah, we're going to try to make it great. Yeah. And it is. We, she got, got a little refrigerator down in her basement for it, 50 degrees. <laughs> it's funny. I knew that yeah. Selma and I were going to be best friends when we <laughs> sat down here a little while ago talking and she was getting so excited about the mold she bought. <laughs> that's right. It's exciting. This is yeah. like a, a, you know, a science project or something yeah, That's right. to, to do this and to grow the thing yeah. and have it come and look just like the camembert cheese that you buy in the store. Selma and Noel, thank you so much for sharing thank this with you. us. We thank really appreciate it. Yeah. Selma Miriam and Noel Fury are co-owners of Bloodroot, a feminist vegetarian restaurant located at the end of Ferris Street on the bank of Burr Creek in Bridgeport, Connecticut. We spoke with them earlier in the year. During our visit to Bloodroot, I got to spend some time in the kitchen with cook Carol Graham. She showed me how to make her famous Jamaican jerk tofu. That's on the website, ctpublic.org seasoned. Check it out. Coming up, we check in on how Selma and Noel are faring right now during the pandemic and hear from a few other restaurants throughout the state. Later, we'll talk to cookbook author and New York Times food columnist, Melissa Clark. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Earlier in the show, we told you about Selma Miriam and Noel Fury, the owners of Bloodroot in Bridgeport. 
Ludford has been serving vegetarian and vegan meals for over 40 years. In recent years, Selma tells us, the restaurant has been squeaking by. Thanks to a small business loan, Bloodroot has been able to stay open, offering their takeout menu Tuesday through Saturday evenings. But the women made a tough decision to close on Sundays. We had a a larger number of part-time workers before, and now what we have are two full-time workers who are here each of those times. And they're just wonderful. And, and we're really glad because we can pay them, really pay them properly, which Good. is what they deserve. And, and then there's a couple of other people who come in and help out. But it's not the same number of people as we used to have. And that's okay. You know, it's the thing, it is very hard because we're old ladies. You know, I'm 85, Noel's 75. And we can't remember what day it is and what we're supposed to be doing today. <laughs> and when it comes to Sunday, I am at a total loss. Because for 43 years, I go to work on Sunday and I do the stove and the griddle. And now I wake up on Sunday and what do I do with myself? And I really, really am nuts. You're getting that extra day off, Selma. Take advantage of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it doesn't feel right. You know? Of course, what I really wanted to know was whether Selma was still cultivating mold and making vegan camembert cheese. Yes, I am. (laughs) And I just today wrapped up one package that will come tomorrow because I'm doing it at home, you know. But yes, I'm still doing it. I find that very, very exciting. One of the bright spots in all this, Selma told me, is that people are seeking Bloodroot out specifically because of their commitment to vegan and vegetarian cooking. Two RVs recently pulled up to Bloodroot, and Selma cooked for new customers who came all the way from Texas to try their food. These things help her remain optimistic. There's more and more people, I think, who are realizing the importance of stopping eating meat. You know, we have people like a fellow last night that came in, he just wants to eat more plant things. And so, of course, it's all very nice. It's not, you know, fiscally wonderful, but so what? Because it's human wonderful. Selma, you are an absolute treasure. (laughs) And honestly, I I cannot wait to come back and see you all. Well, I, I hope you do. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes to catch up with us. You know, I feel we're so lucky to be able to do it because, you know, people are, I mean, there's so many unhappy, miserable things going on, and we're, we are just, we're very, very lucky. That was Selma Miriam, co-owner of Bloodroot in Bridgeport. Selma and Noel are coming to a theater near you. Remarkable Theater, a drive-in theater in Westport, is showing the documentary film Bloodroot on Sunday, September 20th at 7 p.m. For tickets, visit remarkabletheater.org. Now, to check on a couple of other restaurants in the state. Michonne Arrington is the chef and co-owner of Art of Yum on Grand Street in Waterbury. I originally spoke to Michonne in July. Michonne considers the plate his canvas, and early on, it wasn't so easy for him to put his art into takeout containers. But he remained optimistic. Locals, plus new customers from Bristol and Southington and Hartford, ordered takeout. We talked again recently about his optimism, and of course it hasn't changed at all. But there are some challenges coming up. Man, that's the way of life. That's my uh, constant vibe, positivity all the time. That's a good part about you. I think it's infectious, man. Chef, one of the things you said last time we spoke was COVID made you guys a stronger business. So we're six months into the COVID situation right now. Do you still feel that way? Chef, definitely. Like, for instance, a random example, I finally got to look at what our register looked like at at the back end. I fixed all our modifiers. So our waitresses, you know, take lesser time to, to get orders in. 
Oh, right, right. That's some real inside baseball stuff with chefs right there. Just tell them what that means. So a modifier is if you're a truly picky person, you want a cheeseburger with lettuce and cheese or half mayo, half hot sauce, a modifier lets the waitress put lettuce, cheese, half mayo, half hot sauce in there. And I had to put all that in the system with like 80 different menu items. It's, it's extremely difficult, tedious, but thanks to COVID, I know it sounds crazy. Uh, I, I got it done. So it's going to make you run more efficient. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. You know, for the future moving forward, what do you expect over the next six months as far as challenges go for the art of yum? So the biggest challenge is, you know, in the back of my mind is food season coming back. Right. That's the biggest challenge. But the positive part of that is we went through it. So we have a second chance to do it even better than before. And so with that, I'm, I'm already having a, I have a game plan set. If it comes back, if Coca-Cola comes back strong, we got the, the takeout menu ready to go. We have, you know, certain marketing ideas ready to go. And uh, another uh, struggle, I should say, is I'm doing the whole homeschooling thing. Yeah. So I'm going to try to juggle, you know, homeschooling <laughs> and culinary arts at the same time. Um, I don't know how long that will last, but I have a, a set game plan. So if things go cr- crazy again, uh, I'm ready. So I can stay, I can keep that positive vibe, knowing that I'm pre- prepared for anything, really. Man, um, I, I didn't expect anything less from you, that positivity, even talking about being a teacher and being a chef. Are you kidding me? Two of the most demanding professions there are. <laughs> Listen, thanks to you know technology and the different websites, um, it will make it a lot easier for me. Um, because, you know, like I said before, I have three daughters, very young, preschool, first grade and sixth grade. So it's going to be challenging, but I'm ready for it. Let's go. Mine started back, you know, I have twins that are 13 and a nine-year-old. Mine started back last Thursday and it's already been a challenge. But listen, they're smiling. They're happy. Mm-hmm. You, you got to keep moving forward. I think as long as we put forth that energy, they'll feel that. And you definitely do that every single time I talk to you, man. Of course. Of course. And, and honestly, to answer your question more like, on the, uh, the restaurants things, Honestly, since like this month, we've seen a pickup in sales. Um, we're actually seeing people in the chairs, which is a, a great feeling for me. We extended our, our, our outdoor seating. And uh, starting next month, we're doing like a, a little series, a Teachers Appreciation Weekend. Um, Waterbury doesn't really do restaurant week that, that, that much. So we're, right. we're creating our own restaurant week. And we'll have uh, DJs and, you know, different artists outside doing their thing. So obeying all the cdc rules but also trying to bring back the uh 2019 feeling of the art of you john brennan is the chef and owner of three restaurants in connecticut olives and oil in seymour in new haven and elm city social in new haven when i asked how he was doing he said he can't complain i'm, I'm doing all right i just finished you know working uh, a long weekend and you know we booked some catering events and uh, we had some good dinner service in new haven and seymour so I, I can't complain about much today. Uh, I, I guess, but you're allowed to complain because you've been working your butt off and it's a kind of a, a weird time here at 2020. I know the last time we chatted and, you know, kind of kind of spearheading a lot of the stuff with, you know, the cocktails to take home and some other stuff with the state as everyone was trying to figure this out. What's going on with all that? You know, I, I had created a, uh, a petition to continue to allow restaurants and bars to sell cocktails past the deadline. Um, honestly, right now I'm sort of confused on when that executive order expires. You know, I had been told from Ned Lamont's crew, from Paul Mounds, that it expired on September 9th. 
but I was informed by the Connecticut Restaurant Association that it expires on February 9th. Um, so I think that's sort of, sort of still up in the air right now. Uh, for us in New Haven, we're still selling cocktails to go in addition to, you know, our, our street side dining and takeout and our, our in-house service. Um, so I don't really know what, what the answer is, you know, is if we're going to be allowed to do this going forward. I know there's a lot of opposition to it on one side of the coin. So I guess we're just going to have to, you know, just like the rest of this year, take everything as it comes. Has it been helpful having that, though? Have you found people are actually getting cocktails to go and, and kind of getting those check averages up just a little bit? Yeah, it definitely brings the check averages up a little bit here or there. You know, anything we can add to a takeout order is beneficial, whether it's dessert or a cocktail to go or a beer or a bottle of wine. Uh, that's money they would have spent when they were in the restaurants, you know. Anyone that's in the restaurant game knows that that's where we make our money by selling that extra bottle of wine or selling dessert or a cocktail. Um, so it's sort of tough when you take away 20, 30 percent of your total check average uh, when people are, are taking takeout. So definitely having the alcohol sales incorporated in that has, has helped us out. It's every little thing. You know, it's not just one thing. It's a lot of small things that we're putting together. We checked in with the Department of Economic and Community Development for clarification on whether the executive order allowing takeout cocktails would be extended. The administration is extending the order until November 9th. Like lots of chefs and restaurant owners out there, John's main concern was what happens this winter. You know, in New Haven in particular, we've seen a steady increase at our Seymour location. It really depends on the week. But we've seen a slow, steady increase. So that gives us a little bit of hope. You know, but we have the winter right around the corner. Um, we're not going to have the ability to have outdoor seating. Um, so I've instructed my crew, like we sort of have to focus on September, October and November and sort of get as much as we can out of those months. And we're already working on a, a plan as to what we're going to do when the weather gets cold, which as everybody knows, generally after Christmas, at least in this industry, January and February, sales usually usually dip down. So I could anticipate that it might be the same, but a little worse. Uh, I know that you guys at the restaurants hadn't started doing indoor dining the last time we talked. Have you guys moved towards that a little bit more yet, doing the 50% indoor dining? or? Yeah, we have 50% indoor dining, as well as we, uh, we continue to have outdoor dining in our parking lot. We have a patio set up at Seymour location with a tent. And in New Haven, we have our... Uh, our street side seating on College Street. We got half the street shut down. Um, that was another petition I had out and we've managed to maintain that outdoor seating. I'm pretty positive that it, we're gonna maintain that through hopefully November. Listen, you know, hopefully we have a warm fall and a warm winter and people can continue to, you know, support their lo local favorite restaurants by eating outdoors and, you know, still feeling comfortable and safe, but also enjoying what we do. Maybe uh, we can get the state to invest in some of those propane outdoor heaters for all the restaurants. I heard that they have a surplus of cash somehow still. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know I, I think that would be a great move. You heard from Chef Michonne Arrington from The Art of Yum in Waterbury and Chef John Brennan from Olives and Oil in Seymour and New Haven and Elm City Social, the New Haven restaurant with the rubber duckies floating in the cocktails. Coming up. Tips for eating less meat and dairy. I really believe that if you start from the place of what do I want to eat and just at the same time parallel thought, 
but maybe eat a little less meat and dairy, you're going to find other things. Allow yourself the openness to let all the other delicious things in the world come into your life. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Marisol Castro. You're listening to Seasoned. After the break, the always wonderful Melissa Clark. I'm Marisol Castro. This is Seasoned. Right around Earth Day last year, food reporters Julia Moskin and Brad Plummer from the New York Times Climate Desk reported on the ways all of us, food producers and consumers, are contributing to climate change. It was pretty sobering. Omnivores everywhere had to face some hard truths about the world's current food system. And as the authors say, if you eat food, you're part of this system. My next guest is food writer Melissa Clark. Melissa writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite, for the New York Times, and she's the author of more than 30 cookbooks. Melissa's article for the Times, The Meat Lover's Guide to Eating Less Meat, is a must-read for anyone who loves food and cares about the environment. Melissa, welcome to Seasoned. Thanks so much. I have to tell you, when I read that article, after gorging on every manner of meat protein for the holidays... I took it. <laughs> As we all did, right? Yes, exactly. I just thought, okay, Melissa's doing it. I got to see what this is all about. I love that you turned to the climate desk because it would never occur to someone who eats and cooks and thinks about food that I would be contributing to climate change. That was a big surprise to me, too. I didn't realize how complicit I was. Before I read the statistics, I thought of myself as a kind of person who was, I was buying things at farmer's markets, and yeah. I was making sure to buy ethically raised meat. And I thought, well, I'm not part of the problem. Right. But in fact, I am part of the problem. And that was the biggest realization when I read that piece. And also just how deep the problem ran when it came to our food supply. So that was sobering. This statistic, cutting back on meat and dairy, the production of which accounts for 14.5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, as much each year as cars, trucks, airplanes, and ships combined. That is a punch to the gut. Yeah. You know, to me, you know, I think about like, oh, should I not be flying? And I definitely am not going to, you know, use plastic water bottles. But then when you think, well, actually, it's not so much that. It's just, you know, that yummy burger that I just ate for lunch. And, you know, the thing, the part that is so ingrained in my diet, we really love meat. We are a family of meat lovers. But when I read that article, I thought, okay, you know what? I can't give it up. I won't give it up because I love it too much. But what can I do to reduce my intake without sacrificing the delicious? Because I love to eat. I love cooking. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to give up that joy. What I wanted to do was just transfer it a little bit and think about, well, what are the other things I love that don't happen to be meat and dairy? Also, pretty tough being the food writer for The New York Times and not eating everything. I would think. I, well, you know, I mean, I would have to rebrand myself entirely. <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to be the vegetarian food writer for the New right. York Times, which if I decided I wanted to do that, I certainly could. I don't want to do that. You know, there's a compromise in there. And I think there's a compromise in there for a lot of people. If you think about it, it's like whatever I do or whatever you do, it's not going to make that much of a difference. But as a food writer, I can show people how to do it deliciously. And so I sort of feel like that's what I have to start doing. All right. <laughs> so well, I have to do it for myself first. Right. So how do we do it deliciously? Because I had to sort of convince my friends and family that protein does not just come from an animal. You know, there are legumes, there's tofu, there's all manner of protein. It's just we got to be more creative about how to find it. So how do we go about doing this? 
You know, the protein thing, I think, is the biggest sort of barrier to entry for a lot of people because, you know, we were told since we were kids that we must eat enough protein in our diet, especially a lot of athletes right now. We're Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, they have to bulk up on the protein. But in fact, from what I've read and the experts I've talked to, that's not at all true. There is protein in all kinds of food. There's protein in kale. There's protein in rice. There's protein in pasta. And as um, Marion Nessel, who is a very esteemed nutrition professor Mm -hmm. at NYU, or Meredith, she said, protein will find you. You don't have to look for it. As long as you're getting enough calories, which in the United States, we are getting enough calories, then we're getting enough protein. Although, as I say, just don't eat a lot of crap. Right, exactly. <laughs> just like eat <laughs> anything I mean, in moderation. Eat... Nothing, exactly. nothing in moderation is going to kill you. Right. And I, you know, and again, in our head, protein is linked to meat and to that wonderful creaminess that you'll get from cheese and from milk and from ice cream. But it's not. Protein is in everything. Once you get over that initial hurdle, it's so much easier. And so it's a mental adjustment. But once you make it, then you realize, oh, my God, I can eat practically anything and I'm going to be fine. And I also like what you say in your article, which is that you kind of ascribe to the plant stuff during various parts of the day a couple of times a week. And then you indulge yourself in moderation. Do you find that that makes a difference for you? Yes. There are two things that I I think about pretty much every day for every meal. The first is, okay, so I'm not going to eat a lot of meat today. You know, what's the thing? What's the other delicious thing that I'm going to get? The other really great food. Is it going to be beans? And we eat a ton of beans Mm -hmm. in our house and we love them. And then I think, well, okay, so I've got the main ingredient that I'm going to cook with and it's beans. Mm -hmm. And then if I want to add in a little bit of meat or a little bit of dairy, I can because I've got the, you know, the 80% is there. Mm -hmm. I say that people should eat an 80-20 diet, 80% plant-based and 20% meat and dairy. So say that I make a giant pot of chickpeas and I've stewed them with tomatoes and garlic, cumin and Mm -hmm. lemon. Then if I want to add a little Parmesan, that's fine, you know, or maybe I don't. Maybe I'm going to save that 20% and I'm not going to have any kind of meat or dairy for a few days, and then I'm going to have a burger or I'm going to have a steak. You have to remind yourself. I would eat a lot of, um, I always say, my mindless chicken Caesar salads. Like, (laughs) you know, when you're stuck at your desk for lunch and you just go to the cafeteria and you just get yourself a mindless chicken Caesar. No more mindless chicken Caesars for me. I'm going to get a regular salad and maybe I'm going to put some pasta on it or some lentils. And that's a great thing. So I'm very conscious of when I'm eating meat. And I think that being conscious of what you're eating in general is just it's going to make you more conscious of the environment, but also more conscious of your body and your hunger. And it's going to make you feel better. If you actually stop to think about what you're eating and how it tastes, at least for me, I feel like I get fuller faster. And I'm not just mindlessly throwing food down my gullet and then an hour later feel like garbage. That is the first step for really enjoying every single bite is that anticipation and that that concentration and really Mm -hmm. thinking about it. I know that I will start thinking, I mean, I've always done this, you know, you start thinking about dinner, maybe like an hour after breakfast. You're like, oh, mm, an I hour? I have 10 minutes. I'm brushing my teeth and I'm thinking about what I'm making for dinner. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, but you let that anticipation build all day. And I really go out of the way. You know, if I'm going to cook at home, if I'm going to make that effort, I mean, not every night, but I try to really like focus in on that sweet spot between what do I have in the fridge or what can I pick up on the way home from work and what do I really want to eat? Right. And if it's beans, okay, I have to plant it. I have to soak them or not soak them. I can throw them in my instant pot. Or if it's like 
really soft pillowy tofu mm-hmm. and then I put garlicky ginger sauce on it and I broil oh. it until it's crispy at the edges. Whatever it is, it's just a matter of paying attention and a little bit of planning, which right. is important. Before you go for work, you put your beans in a bowl, cover them with water, and then they've soaked all day. And so you get home and then they'll cook up in an hour. You bring up a great point. In your article, you outline six pieces of strategy. And one of them is eat beans and more beans. And I like that. Before you leave the house, start soaking. And if you can't soak, you can always do a quick soak. When you get home, you throw them in a pot of boiling water, cook them for one minute, drain, and then you've got your soaked beans. So there's always a way to work with it. Also, quick cooking beans. Lentils are your friend. Lentils are delicious, and they cook in 40 minutes. High source of protein, but canned or raw? You know, canned beans Give it to me straight, sister. No, I mean, canned beans are one of the supermarket's most fantastic convenience foods ever. And if my pantry is out of canned beans, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. Yes. Oh, my God. Me too. I need to have my canned beans, especially canned chickpeas are my favorite. But I really think the flavor is better when you make them from scratch. And they're so much cheaper. I mean, not that they're expensive when they're canned, but uh, you can have a far greater variety when you buy them dried. I mean, in the supermarket, what do you see, right? Black beans, cannellini beans, Mm -hmm. chickpeas, and kidney bean. But when you go to the dry section of your supermarket, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of kinds of beans. And if I order online, there are even more. So I have a lot more to choose from. And that keeps it interesting. You know, I can get those big, giant butter beans. I can get the speckled, those pretty speckled beans. I can get cranberry beans. That makes it exciting. I love the cranberry bean. I just discovered them at the farmer's market last summer. And truth be told, I did not realize beans came from a can until I was practically in college because my mother soaked beans. Like she did black beans, traditional Puerto Rican black beans, ham hock in there, cilantro and all the stuff. So I saw canned beans. I was like, what is this? Um, (laughs) I'm like, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you do that to a person? How do you get the ham hock in there (laughs) if it's in the can? (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of beans, now I'm thinking of white rice, you talk about grains, including pasta, which I never considered pasta to be a source of high protein. Pasta has a lot of protein. I mean, comparably, it doesn't have as much as beans, but it has a good amount of protein. I forget if it's, I think, 10 grams, but it's enough that if you eat a serving of pasta, especially if you put protein-rich vegetables like Mm -hmm. greens on your pasta, then you are really covering the bases. Tofu. I have mixed feelings about tofu. I do know that it's high in protein, but is it really that good for us? Well, okay. So if you are sensitive to soy, then it's not. There's also some issues about GMO soybeans. So you need to source your tofu carefully. You really try to look for non-GMO soy-made tofu, and that's going to be a better bet, especially environmentally. For me, I mean, I love the texture. You know, there's something (laughs) vegetarians who are listening just... Bear with me for this, okay? (laughs) This comparison, it might shock you, but there's something about tofu that reminds me of, you know, when you get a pork shoulder and you have that pillowy fat and it's braised before you break it down into carnitas? (gasps) That's what tofu reminds me of. And I love that texture. And I think it's delicious and it's mild. So I love to put intense flavors. I love to do garlic and ginger Mm -hmm. and onions and, you know, soy sauce. Kimchi is fantastic. So I like to do that with my tofu. And so I have this amazing, soft, delicate texture. And then I have this punchy flavor. Tofu embraces the flavors that are around it. So it's forgiving as long as the supporting (laughs) cast is in agreement that they're going to co-sign with the tofu. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you have to get your family to eat it, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> if I tr- tried to serve my children tofu, there would be a mutiny. What if you fried it? Oh. 
high heat, yeah. low heat, what kind of oil? Pat it dry, coat it with cornstarch, oh, and then fry it in just a neutral oil. You know, I like to use grapeseed oil, mm-hmm. but you could use whatever neutral oil you use. But if you just put an inch of oil in a skillet, and you've got your tofu, and you put it in there, and then you flip it, it gets crunchy and brown, and then you put salt on it right when it comes out. What? That is hard to resist. Yeah, it's so good. Listen, I convinced my children for like the first six years of their life that tilapia was chicken. So I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, you're smart. You're good. You're oh, yeah. Good. Totally. So I don't know what I'm going to tell them this is, but I'm just going to tell them to eat it because Melissa Clark said so. Because <laughs> it's fried. Exactly. It's fried. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we talk a lot about nut cheeses on this broadcast. Our producers are seemingly obsessed with nut cheese. And I you... thought I was the only one. No, honey child. That. No, no. We've got <laughs> some followers up here. We want to get to the bottom of nut cheese. Nuts are a good snack, but also a good source of protein. But it doesn't always have to just be a fistful of cashews. You can take those cashews and you can throw them in the blender with all kinds of seasonings. You know, I don't use a lot of garlic powder in my cooking, but in nut cheese, it's really good. Garlic powder, smoked paprika, onion, a little tahini if you want to make it even silkier, some citrus juice or some vinegar. And then you set it with agar flakes. And if you're using paprika, it'll turn the whole thing. Well, paprika plus you can put a little bit of bell pepper in there, like a roasted bell pepper mm-hmm. or even just raw bell pepper, and it turns it orange so it sort of looks like cheddar. That look is actually important because when you're eating something, you have the same cue in your mind and you think, okay, this is cheese. I mean, it doesn't taste like cheese, but it tastes satisfying it resembles and it. yummy. Right. And, it, and it's really good on a cracker. What do you want when you come home from work? But something good on a cracker, at least that's what I want. I want <laughs> so, something good on a cracker, a glass of wine, and my yes, children exactly. to be quiet for 15 minutes or so. Um, so the Impossible Burger, the burger that looks like something resembling cow but isn't, is all the rage. I have to be honest, it freaks me out a little bit. I have yet to try one of these plant-based burgers. What are your thoughts on this? You know, they're very processed. They're grown in a lab. They're genetically modified. But at the same time, you're also getting something that gives people who don't eat meat a very meat-like experience. You put one of those things in a bun, and you put your pickles and your lettuce and your you know mayo and mustard on top of it. It tastes like a burger. It really does. I mean, not so you've exactly had one. like a burger, but close. Yeah. And I think they're good. It's a lot more environmentally friendly right. than than cows. They're really good for people who love burgers and want to eat burgers several times a week, but don't want to eat cows several times a week. For me, I'll probably eat a burger, I don't know, once a month maybe. So I'm going to buy my ground beef from a farmer at the farmer's market in a small farm where I know them and I know how the animals are raised. I know they're raised humanely. There's also farms that are actually carbon sinks that actually sequester carbon if it's really, really well run. There's a lot of testing going on about that. So if you can source your meat well, That's the way I'm going to go personally. And that brings up a good point, which is how we kind of started this conversation. You kind of pick and choose your battles. You start off plant-based, and then you afford yourself the opportunity to have the meat, to have the pork, the chicken, the cow. And if it's from a sustainable source, even better. How much do you think, if we look back at climate change, the way we eat food and think about food, how much is too much? Is it different for different people when we're looking at animals as a source of protein in our diet. I think it's very individual. Um, You really do have to 
balance out your happiness with the happiness of the planet. You know, right. I mean, it's a balance. Like you can't, so you can't make yourself crazy with this. Right. But even a small effort, I think there was a statistic that I read, 40% reduction. So a 40% reduction. So eat meat half as much as you normally would. Right. If everyone in America did that, that would make Could you a imagine? huge difference. It would make a huge difference. It would. Yeah. This from the woman who several years ago told me that I should try to fry a Twinkie. Oh, yes, Mrs. Clark. <laughs> I know you, sister. Did you do it? Did you do it? Not Did yet. You, <laughs> you know, I think Twinkies might be vegan. I don't think there's actually... Uh, <laughs> yes, that and Cheetos. there's actually any dairy yeah. product in there. Right. Any eggs. Oh, I do love my Cheetos. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, you know what? There's so many delicious things to eat. <laughs> there are. There are. Any final thoughts on this movement to try to be more environmentally friendly as we think about what we eat I really believe that if you start from the place of what do I want to eat and really listen to your cravings and just at the same time parallel thought but maybe eat a little less meat and dairy, you're going to find other things. Allow yourself the openness to let all the other delicious things in the world come into your life. Melissa Clark writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite, for the New York Times, and she's also the author of more than 30 cookbooks, including Dinner in French, My Recipes by Way of France. It's a lot of cookbooks. <laughs> Before we go, it's time to reveal the winner of our first recipe contest, Megan Kriegel from Rocky Hill. Yay! She shared her recipe for elote corn salad. It sounded so delicious, I just had to make it worth it. To get Megan's winning recipe and to watch a video of our fun cook-along on Skype, visit ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.